Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and as longtime listeners of the podcast know, we have been believers in the strategic significance of Georgia for a long time. Stacey Abrams, the very first guest of our very first podcast. We've had Nakima Williams on beginning of the pandemic. We've had Ense Ufat of New Georgia Project. And you've also probably picked up that we've been frequently frustrated that far too many in the mainstream media and in the top levels of democratic politics both overlook and underinvest in Georgia. And even since the uh, election of 2020 and 2021, where Georgia flipped the U.S. Senate, You've seen a ton of coverage about where Democrats underperformed in 2020, but remarkably little about the wins in Georgia that flipped control of the entire U.S. Congress and how that happened and what that means for the country. Fortunately, there is at least one reporter who has been paying attention and wrote a whole book about the political revolution in Georgia. And we're really looking forward to this conversation with him today for that conversation. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, how are you? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve, I'm doing great. It's springtime, and I am really looking forward to talking to today's guest. Today, our guest is Greg Bluestein. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, where he covers Georgia politics and the state's governor's office. He's the author of Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Today, we're going to dive into talking about his new book, uh, which just came out a few weeks ago, by the way. Everybody should go check it out. Greg is also the host of the Politically Georgia podcast, which he co-hosts with Patricia Murphy. He's also a frequent guest on local and national TV and radio programs. Welcome, Greg. We're so glad you could make it today to talk to us. We're so glad to have you on. Oh, I'm so happy to join you guys. I can't wait for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for joining us and, and commend uh, the book to everybody um, as well as the, you have the ultimate affirmation from my wife who reads a book a week. And so we were going over to Berkeley this morning. So we had to actually reschedule the, the podcast and I was listening to the audiobook in preparation for this uh, conversation with you. And then on the way back, I was kind of like, I don't know how much audiobook she wants to listen to. It's about, you know, politics and nonprofit. I won't, you know, I won't you know, subject her to that. And then she's like, can you put the thing on about Georgia again? I want to hear more of that. So <laughs> I love have, it. Yes, you have that. Now, I want to make sure that we're pronouncing your name correctly. Is it Bluestein or is it Greg Butstein of the Atlanta <laughs> Journal-Constitution? You know, my daughters now call me Greg Butstein because, of course, I don't know if you have the audio, but Vernon Jones uses, he's a congressional candidate here in Georgia, and he uses his minute or so on stage with Donald Trump, not to talk about his own policies, but to attack the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where I work and then call me Greg Butstein. So my, oh my kids gosh. got a kick out of that. Yes, that's the, that's the level of discourse within, within Georgia <laughs> politics. But why don't we actually start there in terms of what is happening on the Republican side um, in Georgia, right? So just to, to set the stage for our listeners, Right. That, you know, this is our our interpretation of how it all unfolded. Right. But that, you know, Brian Kemp was seen in 2017 as really the right wing crazy who was not didn't have a good chance to win the nomination. And then Trump backed him. He rocketed to the top of the pack, won the nomination for in our view and I think many people's views. We think he stole the election, but even if he didn't stole the election, he certainly used his power as secretary of state to his advantage, purging you know, hundreds of thousands of people from the polls. But he got in that position because Trump was backing him. And that then now Trump is on this crusade to take out Kemp. 
And so do you want to give us a, a little bit of background to that, um, Greg, but then also what is the state of play in terms of this former, you know, Trump protege now being under attack and then the, the primary coming up in, in May for the public gubernatorial, how all that is playing itself out? Yeah, what a Shakespearean drama we have here in Georgia. Exactly. Uh, you know, Trump endorsed Brian Kemp in 2018, six days before the runoff against Casey Cagle. Now, look, Kemp was already up in the polls by a handful of points, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight points, depending on the polls. So he might have won without it, but certainly he wouldn't have routed Casey Cagle without mm-hmm. that endorsement. It went from what could have been a, a, a close win to a absolute runaway victory. Um, Brian Kemp ended up winning all but two counties in Georgia. He even wow. beat Casey Cagle, who was the lieutenant governor, in his home county of Hall. That that told you everything you need to know about Trump's popularity then, too. Mm. It was probably at its peak in, in Georgia, um, in, in many senses, among uh, at least within the Republican Party. And fast forward to 2020, actually fast forward just to 2019, when Kemp started making decisions that rubbed Donald Trump the wrong way. Uh, he opened the economy quicker than Donald Trump wanted him to during the coronavirus pandemic in early 2020. Um, but I think even bigger than that, he picked Kelly Loeffler as his U.S. Senate nominee, as his U.S. Senate pick, um, rather than Doug Collins, who mm-hmm. the president knew very well and, mm-hmm. and favored. And I think that started them on this sort of downward spiral that was only accelerated when Brian Kemp wouldn't go so far as some other Republicans, like now we're hearing from David Perdue and, and some other of his allies, in saying that the election, um, that Donald Trump's 2020 election defeat in Georgia um, was rigged or was somehow false. And of course, right. we know that's, that's a big lie. But when Brian Kemp wouldn't go as far as Donald Trump wanted him to, wouldn't call a special session to overturn the election results and wouldn't go on TV and, and, and echo his lies about, uh, about the election fraud, then he, he forever has fallen in um, on the bad side of Donald Trump. And now he's paying the price in a sense. Um, because not only has Donald Trump now endorsed David Perdue and, and encouraged him to run and recruited him to run and then endorsed him as a primary challenger to Governor Kemp, but now he's also backed a slew of other candidates mm-hmm. um, to go against Kemp-backed incumbents. So we're, we're seeing in Georgia a full-scale Republican civil war. And right now, the odds are actually looking pretty bleak for the Trump-backed candidates. We have no idea what the May 24th primaries will hold. They could shock us all. But right now, Brian Kemp is double digits ahead of David Perdue. And from, from what we've heard you know, from the internal polls and, and just from the, you know, the, the mood of the electorate, uh, many of the, uh, the other incumbents who Trump is trying to challenge through his own uh, slate of endorsed candidates, many of them are also struggling. The Trump-backed candidates are struggling down the ticket in Georgia too. So I think Georgia is the biggest test of Trump's influence, and it could be a very bad night for Trump. So what's your analysis of that in terms of Republican voters in, uh, in Georgia, right? Because they came out enthusiastically for Trump, both in, well, in large numbers, put it that way, in, in 2016. Then he got even more votes in 2020 in terms of the you know large turnout but now obviously mm-hmm. Biden's turnout was you know 11,000 votes more right but what does that say about those voters in and how they look at Trump vis-a-vis how they look at Kemp and like wh- what do we know about the, them like ideologically and how they're looking at politics yeah i mean i think there'll be this sort of urge to view this as a referendum on Trump where I think to a degree that might be true, but not really overall. I mean, I think, I think, I think the May 24th primaries will show 
the extent, the, the limits of Trump's influence. Because if Trump was on the ballot, you know, against the, these candidates, he might very well win. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not on the ballot. And, you know, his coalition is less energized to, to vote because he's not on the ballot. And we, we're not sure exactly how, how that will play out. But I think, you know, in gen- we're already hearing from Donald Trump himself sort of downplaying, hedging his bets, saying that it's a shame that David Perdue is facing such uh, entrenched opposition from a very powerful incumbent governor. Now, it's important to say, too, that Kemp isn't running against Trump, right? He is, right. He is not saying a single bad word about Donald Trump. He kind of you know, sidesteps questions when he's asked about Donald Trump's influence, says, hey, I can't control things that are out of my control. I can only control what I do. So he hasn't like, you know, launched a full-scale war against Trump. But Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who was on the receiving end of that famous phone call with Trump, he has. He's been a lot edgier when it comes to Donald Trump. And he's looking pretty good in the polls we've seen as well. Surprisingly mm. so. You know, if you had asked me a year ago if, if, if Brad Raffensperger was going to even be in this race, I would have probably told you no. And instead, he's looking like uh, at the very minimum he'll be in a runoff and he might end up avoiding one. We'll, we'll see. But he's back. He's he's against the Trump back challenger and Jody Heiss, who's a Congress member from Northeast Georgia. Yeah, I just find it also fascinating. Yeah, this it's, it's like a, it, it's like you were saying. There's so much drama, and it would be entertaining if not for the reality of the stakes being so incredibly exactly. high. Right. Uh, it, it is. I do hope you know it'd be interesting. Somebody make you know some sort of documentary or drama series about it someday. But the stakes are high, and I wanted to remind folks that Georgia voters have not elected a Democratic governor since 1998. Mm-hmm. But uh, many of our listeners, I know, are hoping that this will be the year. So in your opinion, your assessment as of now, it's, you know, it's spring um, leading into the primaries. How do you think Kemp and Purdue each stack up against Stacey Abrams in terms of the general? Yeah, what Stacey Abrams is rooting for right now is an extended runoff. Mm-hmm. She wants a June runoff between David Perdue and, and Brian Kemp that mm-hmm. prolongs this Republican infighting because right now, she has been relatively free to run her campaign exactly how she wants to run it, mm-hmm. which is she's mobilizing grassroots supporters right now. She's raising a ton of money. She's already outraised Brian Kemp. In two months, she raised more than he did in seven months. Incredible. Um, so that just shows you the power of her of her of her uh, fundraising uh, lists right now. She's taken some time to be president of Earth on Star Trek. Yes, she was on Star <laughs> Trek as president of Earth, which you know she's leaning into. And mm-hmm. Of course, she knew she knew that that would lead to attacks from Republicans, but she's embracing it. And of course, she's a huge Star Trek fan, so that was kind of a dream come true for her in many ways. But you know, with the other thing she's she's doing, which she couldn't do in 2017, when she, had, she in 2017, 2018, she was she she had to prove herself, um, mm-hmm. not just to national figures and to donors, but also here in Georgia. She was running against a Democrat, Stacey Evans, who was a state representative, who um, was running a more conventional campaign back then, at least, um, of trying to woo you know middle of the road suburban college educated women who used to vote Democratic and had steadily fled to the Republican Party. Um, Stacey Abrams said, hey, we can win those voters over too, but we, we, we need to focus on an authentic liberal message, progressive message, and engage voters of color who had been disenchanted, disconnected, had been left out of, of politics because That's right. no one was really giving them that message that was energizing them. So she's proven that, right? She is now this liberal progressive icon to so many people in, in Georgia and beyond, right? She doesn't have to prove herself as this progressive figure anymore. But and, and this was the fear of, of Kemp's campaign back in 2018, that she would be this liberal icon, but she would also be this sort of pragmatic, 
a problem solving consensus building candidate who could also appeal to the middle. Now they were able to sort of stave off that second narrative, you know, in 2018 with liberal radical, all this, you know, all these attack ads. Well, in 2022 right now, she feels like she doesn't have to go appeal to the left, but instead her, her message right now is basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm degrading it, but it's basically more or less revolved around two words, which is expand Medicaid. That mm-hmm. of course was a part of her 2018 campaign as well, but she feels like there, it's a uniquely energizing message, especially after a pandemic or in the middle of a pandemic, I should say, that we're still fighting, that, that expanding Medicaid and giving equal or more access to, uh, to affordable healthcare will be an issue that is sort of paramount above everything else in this electoral climate. So when she's asked on the campaign trail about you know, rural development, about jobs, about you know, economy, even about infrastructure, almost invariably, her answer goes back to the need to expand Medicaid, something that Brian Kemp and other Republicans in Georgia have long opposed. So how, how is the, this Republican civil war, though, going to play out and factor into the general election? Right. Because you've got, you know, at least some, you know, uh, Kemp being ahead right in the poll, but at least, you know, some meaningful segment of the Republican Party opposing him on Trump's word. Yeah. I think it was on your podcast where you didn't have, you had that clip of uh, 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 Trump saying may as well vote for Stacey over yeah. um, um, Kemp. So if Kemp wins, are the, his, are the Trump people going to stay home? If Purdue wins, how's that going to shake itself out? So what's your assessment of them, each of them vis-a-vis Stacey and the general? Yeah, my gut is that Stacey would rather face David Perdue just because he's gone so far right. It's, mm. it's going to be so hard for him to go. Not that I'm not even assuming he wants to go back to the middle, right? He might even want to go back to the middle if he wins uh, the nomination. But, you know, David Perdue is a, has come out against a $5 billion electric vehicle plant that Democrats and Republicans, you know, uh, have begged for, have pleaded for for years in Georgia. Um, he's now said that, uh, that he also didn't lose his election to John Ossoff. You know, he's kind of parroting the, the Trump lies about election mm-hmm. fraud. And he's always echoed them. But for the first time, you know, a few weeks ago, he said that, no, he also didn't lose, that he was also the victim to a, a rigged election. And he even egged on a, a uh, lock him up chant about Brian Kemp. So that just shows you how far to the right that the David Perdue has moved. I mean, even you know, we're taping this uh, April 12th, even today, he came out and said that the Georgia State Patrol w- w- was ineffective, was basically not elite anymore. And that's something you never hear a Republican in Georgia say bashing the law enforcement, right? So he's doing anything he can to divide himself from Brian Kemp in ways that will come back to haunt him if he wins the nomination um, against, against Stacey Abrams. But look, Brian Kemp, you know, the, the, the concern for Stacey Abrams and other Democrats is that Brian Kemp seems more moderate and more mainstream when compared to David Perdue. And, and Brian Kemp is, you know, Brian Kemp would never call himself a moderate. He is right. the first lifelong Republican governor in Georgia history. And he's has a very conservative track record. Um, he signed just now a few hours ago, an expansive gun law um, that, that makes it so that uh, Georgians can now carry concealed handguns without a permit. You know, this is a step that even, wow. even other Republican governors were very reluctant to even endorse, let alone put their political capital behind. So Stacey Abrams, you know, if it's Brian Kemp, who is looking like that will be the nominee, has her challenges ahead because he's going to blame inflation and gas prices and logistical and supply chain problems on her and other Democrats. He's going to continue to say that Stacey Abrams is only using governor as a stepping stone and urging Republicans to stop her in her tracks right here in Georgia. 
um, before she can run for the White House or, or, you know, all these other attacks that they've used against her over the years. And he can also, you know, I talked about some of the conservative legislation he has, but look, he's also benefiting from record budget and in part from a federal infusion of, of dollars from coronavirus relief funds. That was passed by a Congress with John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock exactly. voting on it. Exactly. And so one of the bills he signed into law already is a $1 billion tax refund. Another, but another bill that he's going to sign soon is uh, gives pay raises to teachers and public employees. Another one will cut the income tax rate, something that you know Democrats and Republicans will welcome in some sense. So all those things will be also wielded on the campaign trail against Stacey Abrams um, later on this year. So let, let's talk a little bit about how we got here, right? And so your subtitle of your book is How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. And you talk in there about it was a long journey to get to that point, which all the Republicans didn't actually see coming. So can you kind of summarize both the, what led to Georgia flipping in 2020 and 2021, and where are you going to see that standing today? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd even go back to maybe 2010 when um, Democrats in Georgia were at a low point, mm-hmm. lost the governor's race. Roy Barnes, who was the, who was the last elected governor, Democratic governor of Georgia back in 98, he lost um, a comeback bid in 2010. Uh, Democrats were at lows in the le- state legislature, um, in a minority in the U.S. House delegation, and uh, every statewide office was controlled by Republicans. And Stacey Abrams comes on the scene. And, you know, at first she was this sort of backbench state lawmaker, uh, but she was affecting change in, in small and meaningful ways in, in committee meetings, you know, in judiciary committee meetings by bra- raising questions about bills Republicans were backing that she'd never vote for. Uh, but she was improving them from a legal standpoint by saying, hey, this is an obvious constitutional flaw. And, you know, through that experience, she realized, I want to be more involved and ends up getting elected as the House Minority Leader. So the leader of the, the state Democratic caucus. And shows in, in some ways how to fight, more effectively fight Republican legislation, but also how to work with Republicans or at least not oppose, you know, not, 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 um, not try to be a stonewall on certain issues like Hope Scholarship, which is a very popular lottery funded scholarship here in Georgia. It was going to be cut drastically. And um, Abrams worked with Republicans to the chagrin of many of her fellow Democrats, by the way, but to sort of stem those cuts, try, try to alleviate the uh, the sting blow of those cuts, make it a little bit less uh, brutal for for uh, middle income Georgians and low income Georgians. You know, and but her, her dream, of course, and you guys have talked about it the show and you've written about it so often, but her dream was to 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 rebuild the Democratic Party of Georgia. And it started with energizing and mobilizing and connecting with voters of color who felt alienated from the process, who who just felt ignored. And hundreds of thousands of those voters didn't cast ballots in midterm elections. And many of them didn't cast ballots in presidential elections either. They didn't feel like that anyone was 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 really speaking to them. And when Abrams ran for governor in 2018, she launched her campaign in 2017 actually, but when she was running for governor for the in 2018, she made a a, a not just a conscious effort, but a relentless effort to reach out to those voters who who she felt were were left behind, were forgotten. And, you know, she messaged to them with with promises not just to expand Medicaid, but also to reform criminal justice system, um, to legalize uh, marijuana in a sense, right? To to expand voting rights, uh, to to bring tax credits that would help low-income Georgians, not just higher and medium-income Georgians. She even talked about, you know, uh, 
the, the Confederate faces on Stone Mountain. You know, it was more of a symbolic act by talking about them. But even by her very, saying that, that, you know, Georgia shouldn't, uh, you know, sort of worship <laughs> the, these, these Confederate icons right. on top of the biggest state-owned monument in, in the state, it sent a message to the electorate. And it paid off. You know, she didn't win, of course, but she came, it was the closest gubernatorial race in Georgia since the 1960s. And during the midterms of 2018, a lot of people didn't know who she was, you know, specifically, including like a lot of people in in Georgia. But I remember after the uh, in 2020, especially after the Georgia Senate seats were flipped and won by Democrats, it seemed like everybody on the Internet uh, was claiming to have known her name. Do you know what I mean? There was a memes of her and, oh, thank you, Stacey Abrams. And, you know, Trevor Noah saying, you know, can you also like handle the pandemic? And she was just sort of, a lot of people just felt like uh, she was like an instant, um, you know, political star or just kind of saying, you know, well, now we all know her name. But I'm curious for you because you've been a journalist in Georgia for so long and covering it. And as you were mentioning, covering her uh, career, when is it that you realized that Stacey Abrams could have the impact that she has had and continues to have? It's a great question because, you know, you know, in the back of my mind as a reporter covering her, I, I, I knew it would be, I knew she would be this national phenomenon. And it was a question for me of how soon it would be. And then like, I think that Republicans would, would, would say the same thing, um, that they, they were not underestimating her as a candidate. And for me that, you know, there was a press conference early in 2018 and she was getting an endorsement from, I think it was a labor union or maybe it was Planned Parenthood. It was, it was, it was a pretty major endorsement um, at a time when she was still facing a, a Democratic primary rival. And I was the only reporter there. And she joked, Bluestein, I might as well just have this in your office. And I remember <laughs> thinking, like, I just remember thinking, this is not going to last. You know, that, mm. that any minute now, um, any day now, there'll be a crush of national coverage. And within, you know, a few months, of course, there was. I, you know, not that much longer after that, I was up in North Georgia in the middle of nowhere, um, a very small town. And I go to one of her events and um, just me. Um, and there's something like seven. <laughs> well, there's 30 other reporters, but there's something like five or six reporters just from the New York Times. Wow. And one of the New York Times reporters leans over and he goes, we're about to send a legion of reporters here. So get ready. <laughs> uh, you know, they were doing, there was a videographer and there was a photographer. So they were all doing different functions. Um, but that was my like, okay, here we are. But to me, you know, knowing Stacy for so long, and that's the benefit and the beauty of being a local reporter, because I've covered Governor Brian Kemp since 2002 when I was in college and he was running for um, state Senate out in Athens Amazing. where I was at UGA. And I've covered Abrams for more than a dozen years. But my biggest question with Stacy was knowing her so well and knowing that, you know, she's an introvert. She is not, mm -hmm. she does not relish big crowds. And, you know, she's, she's obviously <laughs> adapted <laughs> and right. handling them and, uh, you know, has, has made her own mark, but it is not her her dream to be in front of, you know, is, is, is she does not relish being in front of, you know, a thousand people at a rally. Um, right. She's very good at it. And so for me in 2017 was her first really big event. It was a sort of part of the Trump resistance rallies they were having. And it was advertised to me as like, hey, you got to be here because Stacey's going to give her bit, first big speech. And in the back of my mind, I was like, how is she going to be mobilizing? How is she going to be energizing? And it's not a knock on her. It's just that I knew her up until that moment as someone who worked really well in the machinery of the state legislature. It was really good at, you know, giving quick quotes and scrums and, and working on the floor of the legislature and doing really good committee work behind the scenes and, and, and affecting change that way. But what I didn't know her as at that time was as this forceful magnetic speaker. 
And I was, I came into it, I'll be honest, I came into a little skeptical in that 2017 event. I was like, okay, how is Stacey going to do? Mm-hmm. And she gave this speech that I still remember, right? Uh, about about uh, sort of threading the needle of how to oppose Trump, but still being active um, at the grassroots level. And she had this line that, that I'll never forget where she said, if I could cry, I would, <laughs> and, you know, and to me, it was just, she is, she's, she is, um, she's not someone who wears her heart on her sleeve. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's, she's policy driven and she's message driven and she won't get really, you know, she, she's, she's, she doesn't appeal to people in ways that maybe some other candidates do trying to, uh, with, with, at that moment, at least with sob stories and emotional, um, you know, and, and, and emotional speaking. Mm-hmm. Since then, she's evolved as a speaker. And now she connects. Um, I went to one of her campaign events not that long ago, and she gave this very personal story about how her father um, had to go to the hospital. And if he had lived, she was he was living with her in Atlanta at the time. And if he had lived somewhere else in rural Georgia, he might not have made it, you know, because of the hospitals have shut down in rural parts of Georgia um, during the pandemic. So, you know, she's changed as a speaker, but to me, that was another big test of hers in my own view is like, Hey, you know, how will she be at, at, at galvanizing an audience? And certainly she's, she's figured out how to do that. Right. You, you, you say it, it that's interesting about the New York times reporters coming down there, people starting to get a lot of attention. Right. And you, you know, you say directly in your book that what has happened in Georgia could be a model or a lesson for larger politics within the country. I'm curious what your perception has been around how much, the national media and then also the national, um, certainly the Democratic Party leaders see and have uh, prioritized what's happening in Georgia, right? So, you know, when Biden on election night, right, when he says, we're heading Georgia, that's not one we expected. Right? <laughs> so what's been your sense as a reporter in Georgia interacting with the national folks around how much they really grasp what's going on there and its significance? You know, it's been amazing watching candidates and, and, and party leaders from, from both sides of the aisle navigate Georgia because, you know, Stacey Abrams and her allies have long been saying that, you know, with just a little bit of more of a push, with a little bit more investment, um, that Georgia could flip. That, you know, Stacey liked to call, to, to tell uh, national figures and in, in Biden's campaign team that Georgia was basically a cheap, cheap date, you mm-hmm. know, that, that it's much cheaper to invest in Georgia to try to flip than Texas or, or even, you know, or Florida or places with bigger media markets that are more expensive to campaign in. Um, you know, we just have one giant media market and a few kind of, you know, smaller media markets around, but Atlanta, Metro Atlanta is where you know, more than half of the voters in Georgia live. And so that was always her argument. Uh, Republicans, you know, I look at back at 2016 where, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump campaigned in Georgia after they won the nomination. Mm. Georgia was such an afterthought. I mean, the fact that, that Clinton opened an office in Georgia in the final weeks of the, of the race was this giant victory for Democrats. And the office was a very bare bones, you know, little operation in, in Atlanta, <clears throat> um, very minimal investment, you know, from, from a larger scale, if you look at the bigger picture. Um, but it was enough to get Democrats, hey, at least they're paying attention. Then you fast forward to 2020 when, you know, for me, the big wake up call didn't happen until a week before the election when Joe Biden came down to Georgia mm-hmm. with a week to go and gave this big speech at Warm Springs. And then Donald Trump was forced to come back to Georgia um, right right before the election as well. So, you know, the fact that Republicans were, were, were playing defense in Georgia alone was seen as a victory for Democrats. 
let alone having, you know, flipping the state. Mm. <laughs> so um, I've seen that evolve. Republicans have too, though. Republicans were not sleeping at the wheel. I mean, you know, I, I was doing contemporaneous interviews with David Perdue for, for my, for my you know, news coverage, you know, at the time. And he was saying how worried he was about, you know, as a businessman, he's a former Fortune 500 CEO. Um, he goes, I always look at the competition. And I'm watching what the Democrats are doing. I'm watching what Stacey Abrams is doing in, in, in connecting with, with voters who didn't usually vote at, in these midterm elections. And I'm worried. And so he was begging Donald Trump to come back. He was begging um, Republican uh, national donors and, and figures to invest and pump more money into Georgia as well. So, you know, you had that sort of um, dual narrative going on with Democrats saying, please, please invest more we think we can flip the state, but also Republicans saying, uh-oh, we, we've got to spend more money on defense because mm -hmm. they might actually flip the state. Yeah. So, Greg, speaking of narratives, <laughs> there's still this debate in Democratic circles about how exactly Georgia was won in 2020. We feel like it's really clear, but if you read news coverage um, nationally, there's just not necessarily consensus. How much of the win was because of moderate Republicans abandoning Trump and then backing Biden as opposed to a multiracial, on-the-ground, grassroots movement of Democrats and progressives getting the vote out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think first, a few things can be true, true at the same time, right? Democrats did their job by in, in the runoffs by basically reforming that coalition that helped Joe Biden win. Um, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock had to basically, uh, you know, get that exact same coalition back together nine weeks later to win that runoff. And they did, right? I mean, you know, there was a little bit of a drop off, but they had to find the right messaging. And they did. They, they, they went for their progressive base. They talked about coronavirus stimulus money. They talked about criminal justice issues. They talked about public health issues. They talked about all the issues that Joe Biden had, had focused on in the run up to his victory. And they did not, again, they did not shy away from liberal icons, liberal, liberal figures. When Bernie Sanders um, offered to come down to Georgia and support John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. John Ossoff immediately said he accepted his endorsement. And that's something that, you know, having covered John Ossoff for years and having covered his congressional campaign in a, in a moderate congressional district where he stayed away from as many national figures as he could, that illustrated to me just how quickly and how, how vastly um, the strategy had changed in Georgia. But also, you know, Republicans were not only hurt by what you mentioned were the moderate voters who felt alienated by Trump and didn't want to support anyone tied to Trump, but also the fact that tens of thousands of Republicans stayed home. And we're not sure if they would have stayed home either way, but but the, the message from Donald Trump to go vote in a rigged election, you know, didn't help at all to the point where Kelly Leffler's campaign even had a, a list. She had a database full of names full of hardcore, devoted Republican um, Georgians um, who, you know, could usually be counted upon to vote for a Republican candidate. But they called that list GOP not voting because they were so wound up in Donald Trump lies. And look, we can say, hey, you know, Donald Trump's not on the ballot. And so maybe that will help Republicans. But he's still trying to shape the election every way possible and has even gone so far as to say he'd rather see Stacey Abrams as governor than Brian Kemp. So even though he's not on the ballot in November or in May, he is still doing his level best to, to, to shape the Republican side of the race. And few people think that if Brian Kemp is the nominee, that Donald Trump will suddenly stop attacking him. That, that's probably not going to happen. I mean, no one wants to predict what Donald Trump will do, but 
it's hard to imagine Donald Trump saying, you know what, let's, let's let bygones be bygones. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll stop my crusade against Brian Kemp. What kind of impact do you think that would have if he does that? Oh, I mean, first off in the media narrative, I mean, you know, we, we in the press will write all sorts of stories about how the Donald Trump voters and Donald Trump's attacks are not only going to hurt, you know, Brian Kemp, but also hurt Herschel Walker, whoever the Senate nominee is. Um, imagine trying to be Herschel Walker and trying to walk that line between accepting Donald Trump's support, but also saying, but don't listen to him when he talks bad about Governor Kemp, because, mm. you know, that will, that will affect him. That, that will bleed over on the ballot, too. Um, some voters might just say, as much as I want to vote for Herschel Walker, I'll just stay home. So I think that'll affect. But also, you know, it, it'll affect some Trump voters. They're, they'll, they're, I still encounter Trump voters all the time who say that um, they're not going to vote for Brian Kemp under any circumstance. Mm. And not that long ago, I, um, I got video of one of Brian Kemp's meetings in, in the Fulton County GOP. So Fulton County is the largest county and the most populous county in Georgia. That's a, that encompasses most of Atlanta. It's a majority Democratic county, but the Republicans there are pretty mainstream. This is not a far right county by any means. Um, but at the Fulton County GOP breakfast, Brian Kemp was essentially heckled by not, not a majority of the crowd, but a significant number in the crowd. And one woman called him a liar. Right. So that's that's just another example of how uh, these issues continue to plague uh, Brian Kemp and they're not going away. Wow. I want to ask a question about Herschel Walker. You might you might be you went to University of Georgia. Is that right? Yes, I did. Go down. Yeah, I, I, I believe I, I, I saw the enthusiasm around the national championship on your Twitter. I was trying not to be too obnoxious. <laughs> yes. But I actually wanted to ask about that because I, you know, as Charlene knows, I'm a sports fan, but it's a relevant piece. So for people who don't know, right? So Herschel Walker was, you know, huge football star, University of Georgia in the 80s. And he was a big football star in, in the pros. And then he moved to Texas. <laughs> and then, yep. um, well, pertinent to this, to this little story is Herschel Walker is black. And then Raphael Warnock wins the, the Senate race. And then basically Trump recruits Walker to come run against Warnock um, to leave Texas, go back to Georgia. So my actual question is, is back tied back to the thing. So he's he's like... A lot of people revere Walker because of his sports superstardom, but that was in the early 1980s. And so I've had that actual question about, do people even remember, but you would be a perfect person as a football fan, as a Georgia person. Did you guys know who Herschel Walker was or how does he occupy the, the mindset uh, of people like that? So full disclosure, I'm a Georgia native, grew up in, in just north of Atlanta, but was not alive when Herschel Walker was playing football at UGA. <laughs> but right, yet, that's my question. So how does it yeah. resonate with people more your age? But yet, you know, so I'm in my 30s, but yet still grew up hearing tales about Herschel Walker's athletic prowess, right? About you know, his legend. So certainly, you know, look, even to the point where I bump into an airport five or six years ago, and, you know, this is long before he was a political candidate, obviously, but I rushed up and I never do this, but I rushed up and took a selfie with him. Mm. Right. Um, that's just, you know, that's just the type of person he is to a Georgia native because you've, you've especially a, a graduate of the University of Georgia, big football fan. He's Herschel Walker. He, he's not just as his, is his, um, you know, his numbers uh, retired at UGA, but it, it's basically ensconced in gold. I mean, that, that's what he means to the UGA fan base and then beyond you know, Georgia, just, it, it just seems like his name recognition, his visibility in this state, in this football mad state is almost universal. 
So he comes into this campaign with that advantage alone. Mm -hmm. This is before even Donald Trump endorsed him and all that. He already has this soaring name recognition, which, as you know, you know, is important in politics these days when it's right. harder and harder to get your message. So, so I guess the question will be for Georgia voters, what's the bigger influence, University of Georgia football or the legacy of Martin mm -hmm. Luther King? Right. In terms of this so that's one this. way to put it. Right. You know, Democrats will try to put it that way. Um, right now, we're seeing Herschel Walker kind of coast on that name recognition. Right? Mm -hmm. um, he's done events, but most of his events are behind closed doors. They're private gatherings or they're tightly controlled gatherings where, you know, the media aren't notified that he's going to be at XYZ event or anything like that. And, you know, he's done very few interviews with objective outlets. He's mm -hmm. done mostly interviews with, with um, friendly outlets. He's done more media interviews nationally than locally so far. We don't know where he stands on, a range of issues. And of course, as a reporter, I want him to do town halls and debates and forums and sit down with me for an interview. But I also look at his poll numbers. And if you put your campaign strategist hat on, and luckily I've never had to wear one of those, but if you do, look, he's at, he's near 60% in the last poll. Wow. Um, I think his campaign's polls show him closer to uh, mid sixties when it, in, in the Republican primary. So he feels like he has nowhere to go but down if he does participate in more events and things like that. In the general election, all bets are off, right? I mean, polls show him very closely tied with, uh, with Raphael Warnock. It's hard to read too much into those polls right now. Right. Um, it's still so far from November. But you better believe that Raphael Warnock, and, who has a, a huge war chest and has outraised every other Democratic Senate can contender in, in the nation so far, um, you better believe that that he will effectively use that to a you know promote his own campaign, but b tell voters about Herschel Walker's history of violence and mm. uh, erratic behavior and his exaggerations in his business career and his lies and his background and all yeah. sorts of other issues. Yeah, for people who don't know, it's violence against women, violence against his ex-wife, right? So, yeah, yeah. His his ex-wife and then several other women who have made allegations that mm -hmm. um, he stalked them or threatened them uh, with with guns, threatened police shootouts. There's all sorts of things that happened in his past that, that he's addressed in some in, in some instances in a book he wrote about his mental health disorder. Um, he suffers from dissociative identity disorder, but still hasn't fully articulated them on the campaign trail and certainly yeah. hasn't done a big media interview about them. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, I'm, I'm sitting here processing like, I knew he was a famous football player and a lot of people look up to him and he's been around and his name's been around for a long time. But I, well, I did not know that. Yeah. Good, to, good to know. You know, and in some sense, he, he there was a debate, a forum just a few days ago that he didn't participate in. And in some sense, I get it, right? He's, 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 he doesn't even identify his rivals by name. He's never mentioned Gary Black, the agricultural commissioner of Georgia, who's running against them and, and other candidates who are running against them. So I get, you know, tactically why I didn't want to participate. But look, that, that would have been a great place to kind of air out, have them attack him over, over those past issues and have him at least test out messages on how to respond, because we still haven't really seen that yet from yeah. him. So, Greg, we're going to wrap up soon, but I do have a last question uh, in your book, which, again, we highly recommend everybody checking out. You highlight some of the unsung heroes or what we like to call on our show hidden figures who are helping upend the balance of power across the country. So who are the rising stars that folks are overlooking in Georgia who people should know more about? Um, well, one is Adrienne White. She is the recruitment vice chair for the Democratic Party of Georgia who made it a mission years ago to rebuild, to help Stacey Abrams, but really, you know, 
Daisy Abrams can't do these things alone, right? Um, but to help the party, to help the Democratic Party rebuild, and has set out to recruit and engage with and build a roster of candidates to run for offices, even long shot offices, right? Even even deeply conservative territories, candidates that it would take a miracle for them to win. But in her view, that by getting these candidates to run across the board, you know, it helps down ticket turnout. It helps it helps Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock at the top. And it's people like them who spend their weekends, they spend their nights, they spend their time away from their family um, to do that sort of work and get very little recognition. And so in, in that sense, um, I'd say Adrian, but there's so many other activists from, you know, from both sides of the party line who I interviewed for this book, who devoted their time and resources and energy to helping their candidates win. And to me, it's sort of amazing because it's hard enough for, for me to, you know, to cover the stuff and then go home and be a family man and to watch them. And I bump into these folks at weekends and nights and all sorts of events all around town. I'm like, how do you keep up with it? How do you do it? And they're always there. So it's really incredible seeing yeah. that sort of groundswell of energy. Yeah, it's interesting. We watch, you know, we it's been fascinating to think we've known, you know, Kima Williams for a while, the congresswoman now has replaced John um, John Lewis. And she's like everywhere all the time, the amount of energy. And so that's like so fascinating to watch. And I did not know, but she, I mean, she, I follow more Facebook friends as well. And she keeps talking about, you know, Carter Cakes and Carter's her son's yeah. name. I did not know until reading your book that she named her son after Jimmy Carter. You know, I was going to name. And Nakima too as one of those, but she's not really unsung anymore. <laughs> she's a congresswoman who, mm -hmm. who who succeeded John Lewis. So and and the head of the Democratic Party of Georgia. But certainly certainly a national audience um, hasn't become as familiar with her as we have in Georgia. Yeah. And yeah. she is someone who will be on the national stage. And yeah, um, her husband Leslie used to work for John Lewis. She was very close to John Lewis. She named her her son Carter, who's awesome. After the former president, she's from she's from Alabama, but she just she moved to Atlanta shortly after college and just devoted herself to activism and to politics and is really a success story because look, look, look where she is now. Right. All right. All right. All right. Well, it's, we could, we could talk about Georgia forever, but I think that we have to keep the podcast to a certain limit, but so we really want to thank you for coming on and also just really, you know, I'll commend, you know, to our, to our listeners, the, your book flipped and just to you know, express our, Gratitude to you because we got there's a lot of frustration about the lack of understanding and the lack of attention, the lack of focus. And I really feel like you um, shine a light on something that's hugely important in this, in this country. And you really bring a lot of that to light. And you've done a great job with it um, in your book. So I wanted to commend you for that. And thank you for coming on the pod with us. Well, thank you so much. It was really a, a pure joy to be on. And I'm happy to come back anytime because I think that Georgia will remain in the national spotlight the rest of this year and beyond. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. That was our uh, first non-black woman guest from Georgia that we have had on the podcast. And as we had said, we really appreciate the work that he's doing and really focusing on what's super important uh, objectively, but very few people in the media actually grasp. And I, I can say, having read Greg's book, that he, he lifts up these key stories that everybody should understand. You can follow Greg on Twitter at, at Bluestein. And listen to his podcast, Politically Georgia, wherever you get your podcast. His book, Flipped, is available now. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color.
And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.